The History of Castlebar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. Hello and welcome to the History of Castlebar podcast. I'm Noel Campbell. And I'm John Healy. Each week we'll be discussing a selected chapter from our book, The History of Castlebar, which is available online from mayobooks.ie or in-store in the Castle Bookshop. This week we'll be discussing a chapter that John has penned and it's A Music Town. John, A Music Town, it's it's a, a broad chapter, I suppose. It is, and, and very much so, Noel, A Music Town, because, uh, you know, everything from orchestras to show bands to musicals, operas, pantomimes, choral societies, you know, Castlebar covered covered the whole gamut of, of musical activity and musical entertainment. And that's going back to, we'll say, the early 1900s, I suppose, when the first regimental bands, well, not the first, but the regimental bands would parade through the, the streets of the town from the, the military barracks. And they would, would have been a standard part of the entertainment locally as well. And it was a an ex-British Army bandsman, a man called Mullins, who lived on the Westport Road, who formed the first ever Castlebar brass band. He was an accomplished bandmaster and achieved a very high standard, apparently. It went on to be called the Temperance Band. Now, I don't know whether that was a misnomer or not, because the word has it that some of the members were partial to a drop of alcohol. Yeah. So I don't know whether Temperance was just a nod to the Temperance movement or not. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, jocosely down the years, it was sometimes referred to as the Porter Band. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe maybe that shows that Temperance wasn't exactly might there. Might have secured funding for them or something, you never know. Yeah. <laughs> they might have secured funding from them, that's right. The Temperance Band went on for many, many years and eventually it fizzled out. Immigration took its toll and that. But there was always... The sort of a nucleus of a, a, a band or a brass band in the town. Even in 1936, when the All Ireland team came, you know, the musicians assembled to play them down from the from the, the railway station. And then every year at the Eucharistic procession, again, they would assemble kind of out of nowhere, and you'd have a band to lead the Eucharistic procession around the town. So there was always that tradition of uh, music bands and marching bands. And then, of course, you come along to the, the present Castlebar Brass Band. And from 1964 to 79, we had St. Joseph's Silver Band. And that was a very successful band as well. Again, that fizzled out, but was reformed. And to the extent that in 2012, you had the Castlebar Band playing in New York at the St. Patrick's Day Parade and playing in Gaelic Park. I think Mayo were playing that weekend as well in Gaelic Park. Mm. So, you know, it has been continuous Continuous. And as you said, there was always kind of the, we, the town could always count on a on a core group of musicians could, to, yes. to yeah. I suppose at a time when instruments probably weren't cheap and certainly they were a luxury maybe at the time. It's it kind yes. of it's it's yeah it's a compliment to the town that they could always call on on, on they could call on, to come together. Yeah. Well quite a number of them would be attached to particularly the Stephen Garvey band, you see. So there would be uh, musicians who were members of the band and who would turn out for these kind of special occasions as well as fulfilling their duties to Stephen as Tell me a bit about yep. Stephen. I mean, it's a name that uh, comes up time and time again, but he's, he's, he, I admit he's someone I know very little about. Yeah, he was... Uh, Stephen was legendary, legendary character. He he was born in, Chap- in Castle Street in 1902 and he was a bit of a child prodigy even, a musical prodigy even then, you know. And by the time he was 20, in 1922, he had produced a pantomime in the town hall, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, 
the proceeds of which went to the local battalion of the IRA. So that gives you an idea where Stephen's mm-hmm. sympathy lay. That was 1922. But by 1926, he would be only 24 years of age at that stage. Uh, he was leading his own orchestra. He was performing in Galway, in Bailey's Ballroom, where the programme went out on 2RN. I think it was Radio Aaron, the forerunner of Radio Aaron. But he performed, his band performed there, and he was only, as I said, 24 years of age then, you know. So he was an all-rounder. He was choir master. He was the organist in the church. He was a composer. He was a lyricist. He was a producer of operas and pantomimes and musicals. A general all-rounder, as well as being, of course, the leading orchestra of his day, I'd say. You know, he was internationally recognised, played in New York, visited America, wowed them in America, you know. So, yeah, he, he was was, he the, was fa- the torchbearer for yeah. music. Was, the, was the family uh, was the family synonymous with music, the Garvey family in Castle Street? Mm. Castle Street seems to be a bit of a hotbed of music, was it? It was, yeah, yeah. Castle Street was sort of renowned for its musical talent. Not particularly, no. I don't know where Stephen would have picked up his... Mm. He did come under the wing of a Dean Jackson, who was the Protestant minister in town, and he was a man very devoted to musical accomplishment, trained a lot of singers for Fesh Kjol and trained musicians and that sort of thing. So I'd say Stephen probably got his early early lessons in, in piano and music from Dean Jackson. In 1953, he was invited to America. He kind of liked America, came home again, played again with the orchestra for another maybe three years and then retired permanently to Houston in Texas, where his sister, Sister Mercedes Garvey, was a, a member of the Divine World Mission, Divine World Order in Houston, and died a young man. He, he he retired, went to Houston in 1956, and died in 1962. He was only 60 years of age, and was buried in buried in Houston. Now, come 1978, the UDC after a lot of discussion, put a plaque on his birthplace in Castle Street. Mm. And that prompted a lot of interest again in Stephen and a lot of people who knew him over the years. And they figured that maybe his remains should be repatriated. So a committee was formed in 1995, the Friends of Stephen Garvey. And it was very successful, raised a lot of money. And he he was brought back and reinterred in the Garvey plot in the cemetery here in Castlebar. And of course you have the Stephen Garvey Way called after him. I Stephen think Garvey Way as well, Carl, yeah, along the ring road as well. Also called that as well, you know. But yeah, he, he had a brother, Jimmy Garvey, who after Stephen left to America, Jimmy took up the role of producer of pantomimes. He died a young man as well, but very successful too, you know. And the pantomimes were, were, were quite big. Big events. Oh yeah, they were huge and, events. And as you mentioned, Stephen Garvey and Andy McTighe and a few others That's were correct. well known as uh, who do we, how do we call them? Organisers and organizers orchestrators and maybe? They were. That sounds a bit clandestine, but organisers. Yeah. The pantomime, I mean, was it a Christmas event? Was it an annual event? It was an annual Christmas event and the funds went to the Vincent de Paul Society, so that was the big, mm. I'd say it was their big fundraiser for them, you know. Highly successful. It was run for a week. And, you know, draw audiences from all over. I remember we had a small shop, 
across from the town hall. I remember as a young fella, people coming from Castle and Roscommon and buying sweets and boxes of chocolate before they go into the... Uh, coming from that far out? They were coming from that far oh. out, yeah. I thought it was well regarded. Very, very highly regarded, yeah. yeah very, very, uh, very highly thought of. And kind of caught the imagination of the town, you know. You had... Everybody was involved in the panto. There wasn't much else... Maybe to do, probably, <laughs> in the 50s. So everybody was involved in the pantos. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I remember reading an, uh, a list of names involved with one of them, and it's kind of striking, as you mentioned. A lot, Everyone took part in it, from the professionals and the, uh, you know, everyone was involved. And That's true. It was solicitors a, were acting and... They were, they were. It was across the board, yeah. teachers and doctors and <gasps> solicitors and everything. You everyone know? bought into it. Everyone, yeah. You mentioned there in Old Castle Street, you know, and I suppose... Or Castle Lane, as it was known back in the back in the day, and it was synonymous really with music. You know, you had a whole series of people and performers who lived in Castle Street, apart from Stephen. You know, Stephen being the outstanding figure. But at the very end of Castle Street, the last house on the left, kind of under the the convent wall, if you like, yeah. there was a house there and a man called Daddy Welch. I don't know what his real name was. He was known as Daddy Welch. And Daddy gave dancing lessons, Irish dancing and ballroom dancing. And people would go along there before they'd go to the proper dances in the town hall. And Daddy would, you know, teach them the old-time waltz and the quick step and that. Prepare them. Extraordinary, you know. And then right behind, beside him on the town side, there was a lady called Madame Burke. She was Mary Burke is her name, but she was always called Madame, Madame Burke. Madame had her own orchestra as well. And highly successful, she was a tremendous pianist and accordionist. She had her own orchestra. She played in dance halls and that, but she'd also played in Ashford Castle for society functions, you know, the Galway Blazers Ball or the Hunt Ball or that type of thing. And again, she was very successful. Her band, her band went on from, you know, right through the 50s, I'd say, 40s and 50s. And then she retired and she devoted her time to teaching music. After that, she became the resident pianist in The Traveller's Friend. So she'd every weekend she played as resident pianist in The Traveller's Friend. And yet she turned out and maybe play with Stephen if he was stuck for a pianist. So yeah. she was across the road. All he had to do was, are you free for such an engagement tonight? And, and that was it. And she'd, she'd, uh, she'd be at it. Beside her, you had, um, well, there was a man called Christy Hoban, father of John Hoban, the present musician, singer yeah. and musician yeah. and troubadour. Uh, Stephen had a grocery shop and he was a tremendous singer. The Kearney brothers, Kearney family indeed, uh, Dr. Paul Kearney's father, Piers, uh, his uncle Jojo, his aunt was Rosemary and she was a music teacher in St. Joseph's Secondary School. Okay. And she was the mainstay of Stephen Garvey's operas, you know, she was, she really was the 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 combining force of of the whole thing, getting the orchestra together, getting the choreography going and so on, you know. And then you had the Collins Music Shop, Tommy Collins's, Tommy's grandfather, John J. Collins. He was, um, well, he was a multi-talented man, as you know. He was a politician and he was a publisher and he was a journalist and he was a newspaper owner. But he was, again, he was a, a musician. Uh, the piccolo was his particular instrument. But he he was recorded to play on RTE, or 2RN as it was then, on St. Patrick's Day. Every year he'd give a a performance and a recital. And his son, Kevin 
who would be Tommy Collins's uncle. He, t- he was a violinist and he played as well on 2RN. And they were signed up by Parlophone. Parlophone was a well-known record company at the time. We had Parlophone and Decca and various labels like that. And the Collinses were signed up by Parlophone to produce a series of traditional Irish music. They also had a recording studio, I think. I mentioned that in the book. They had that, a recording yeah. studio and the music shop. So you'd come in and you'd record a message for your family overseas or for your relations in America and that type of thing. And they'd record it there and send it off to America to be played. Yeah. And if you were, a, let's say if you were a budding musician and fancied yourself, you could go in and be recorded in Collins's and then send off your send off your credentials to whatever music publisher might be interested might be interested in what you're so they, they were, yeah they were very very forward thinking the Collins family at the time you know it was but all that happened as I say in Castle Lane quite a small street its own, yeah. quite a small street yeah it's phenomenal but I think John Hoban has a song called Castle Lane where he records a lot of that in his. In his own growing up, you know. I think that's available on YouTube. So it is, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's phenomenal for a small street to have such a... For a a small street, yeah. And we're not talking just uh, standing up in in the pub having a tune. We're talking about... uh, Oh, well, you're well talking about the real, oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, high quality stuff, you know. You know, you had a lot of that, and then you had the song contest, of course, came in after that, and that was, kind of took over. When did the song contest, when was it, when was it mooted that this was going to be a, a runner, or who was involved even, or where, where, well, would, the, where would the idea have come the from? The idea came from uh, a songwriter from Northern Ireland, a Mrs. Hall, who was friendly with Michael Joe Egan, the solicitor. And she suggested to Michael Joe that maybe a song, you know, about Castlebar could do wonders. You know, like Lovely Leitrim was out at the time and that was Boost and Leitrim and you had Galway Bay. And she suggested a song for Castlebar. And Michael Joe Egan thought, yeah, that was a good idea. So he brought it to the Chamber of Commerce and they looked at it and they thought... Yeah, why not? Give it a go. So the first song contest, it was only a one night affair in 1966. It was in October. And anyway, they, they, they got a bit of momentum going and Paddy Jennings decided or agreed to put up a substantial cash prize for the winner. Jerry MacDonald, who was the band manager in the Royal Ballroom, put the finger on a lot of bands because they were free on Monday night to say to come along and perform. The contest would be the centre point of the concert and Gay Byrne was engaged and, of course, he was a big, big name. He was engaged to run the show and to become peer. So I remember I was there that particular first night and, you know, the crowds were hanging from the ceilings, as they say. You know, you couldn't get in the door. It was a big, big night. The whole thing went on till about 2 o'clock in the morning because you had fellas coming on and then to take their gear away and then more fellas would come on with gear and so on. But they had 70 entries for the of song, new songs for the competition. That was whittled down to 15 so the 15 songs had to be performed as well as the peripheral entertainment as well, you know? Yeah. So they picked a winner and the song was played on the Late Late Show. The performers were put on the Late Late Show the following Friday night, which was a great, mm. a great boost, you know? And was it, was it <clears throat> did it go out live, the, the Castle Bar no, show? Not, no, not, not at, at that, that stage, stage. Not no. at that stage. Later on then, when the Chamber of Commerce saw how successful this was, they decided we'll make a week-long song contest out of it. So it ran from Monday to Friday. And on Monday night, you might have country and western, and on Tuesday, you might have folk music, and on Wednesday night, there'd be something else. And each night, there'd be, I think it was three qualifiers from the early nights, and then on Friday was the big. What was attendance like midweek? I mean, that's a big ask. Monday it was to, good. Monday to it the Friday. It was surprisingly good. Was it? Yeah. 
Yeah, and the caliber of axe as well. Still, oh, the caliber still is very good. Oh, yeah. You see, at the time, RT weren't interested in amateur songwriters, for want of a better word, mm. of which there were hundreds, and some of them very good uh, throughout the country. So Castlebar was the ideal place for them to test their test themselves out, you know. I mean, it grew and grew and grew. You'd start with Gay Byrne, you had Mike Murphy, Terry Wogan flew, flew in from London, Acker Bilk flew in from England to perform. You had all, you know, Dana, who was the Eurovision winner around that time, she was one of the stars. You had the top names at the thing. Then the RTE Concert Orchestra were taken on board and they'd arrived down in Castlebar, spend the week and they'd perform. It was recorded then for transmission on the Saturday night. That was the original idea. But after about two or three years, RTE decided they'd send it out live. So it was transmitted live on a Friday night. Topped the TAM ratings. It was the biggest thing, biggest thing they had on That's, RTE. So from, from its... Its initial one night beginning. How long till it was a, a, a live? It was being presented live on Saturday nights, which was probably what the last night of the the, the last event. The last night of the of the concert. Yeah, well, that not, was not too long after. Maybe was it? Not too long after in the nineteen eighties. I think. Yeah. it was. So who would? I mean, to get to get say Gay Byrne, as you said, the the biggest name. Yeah. Biggest name. Who would? Who, who, who would? I mean, you mentioned uh, Paddy Jennings. Any other names that were obviously working well, hard to deliver these? Well, big the Chamber acts. of Commerce worked very hard. You know, John McHale was the editor of the Connacht Telegraph, and he was director of the Song Contest, and he had huge network of contacts with the media in Dublin, and they'd invite down the social diarists from the papers as adjudicators. So, of course, that mm-hmm. mutually guaranteed. Paper space. Huge, co- yeah, oh yeah, yeah, huge coverage. And they were lucky insofar as, with, for example, the director general of RT was a man called George Waters. George was from Ballina. He was an engineer by profession, but he was a first cousin of Tom Carell, who was the subsequent editor of the Connor-Telegraph. And that helped to open a few doors as well. So, you know, when it came to a bit of leverage with RTE and a bit of leverage with the national papers, they had all the contacts. Their main problem, and I think what probably sounded the death knell in the end, was that they couldn't get con- promise of continuity from RTE every year. Every year they had to go back to RTE and plea with them to put out the programme. So six months of the year was taken up with going up and down to RTE and asking would they do the Friday night. And then you went out to look for a sponsor and the stage time was running short mm. whereas if they could have got a commitment from RTE say a five year commitment then you know sponsorship would have been that much easier to get and backers and so on and was it was that was that did that lead to its its eventual it did decline? Really. it did I think yeah yeah by 1988 RTE were saying oh we have transmission difficulties and you know we're, we won't do it anymore and you owe us money for the orchestra not been paid when they were down in Castlebar which was a bone of contention and the Castlebar people say, no, no, that was never the that was never the plan. You were always supposed to come free of charge to this thing. But you know, in the end, what happened was RTE pulled the plug. The Guinness and Gallagher cigarettes, who were the main sponsors, said they weren't interested anymore. Right. And I think that really put the you know, and maybe it had lived its twenty two years. Maybe it had lived its life at that stage. Quite, quite a long time to it was a long yeah, time. And, it was and well done yeah. for getting that much out of it. Oh, perhaps. it was a huge, huge success. Huge success. Well, John, thanks very much. I won't ask you to sing us out, but thanks very much for the <laughs> for a good look back at a very musical town. And I think we still have that today as well, which is great. So maybe, you know, in another uh, few decades, somebody will be somebody adding, adding another chapter. Exactly, to the music and another chapter. Thank Indeed. you, John. Thanks. Indeed. Thanks, Noel.
Before we go to an ad break, we'll take our usual look back at an ad from the past. And John, I think you have an ad from the Connor Telegraph from the early 50s. I have indeed, Noel. I picked out this one from the 3rd of May, 1952. And it must have been a time when hygiene was a major issue in the in the country because it's, it's a, quite a big ad. And the heading on it is, Are Those Hands Clean? With a picture of somebody seemingly buttered in a slice of bread. I think that's what it looks like to me. But the dialogue reads, Your hands can be a danger, not only to yourself, but to those you love. They touch dirt and so gather germs. So always, before you touch food, make it a rule to wash the hands thoroughly with soap and water. Remember always that there is danger in dirt, but cleanliness means safety. And the strap line at the bottom, there is danger in dirt. And it was issued by the Women's National Health Association of Ireland, Inc., an association I never heard of no. before or since. Does that ring any bell with you? No, not in the slightest. But as you were reading it, I was expecting it to end with um, the health department. Yeah, that's or, right. Or, at all. Uh, which department were, of Health, yeah. Which were doing big ads at the time about unpasteurised milk. And that's don't, right. Don't be buying door to door because it's... There were, that's the right. To be careful of your... Yeah, yeah, in, in, yeah. in trouble. So the Women's National Health Association of Ireland... Ink, which nearly gives it an American flavour, you know. Yeah, yeah. Poss- possibly linked to the soap that they were selling or something, you wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> maybe so, yeah. maybe so. But uh, yeah, that was that, that's, that was the one I picked out for, for this week. Brendan Gumartin, Video and Photography, New Antrim Street, Castle Bar. With state-of-the-art equipment and a keen eye for detail, we bring your vision to life. From corporate events to family portraits, we ensure every shot is stunning and memorable. Call now at 087-746-0121 to schedule your consultation. Brendan Gamartin Video and Photography, New Antrim Street, Castle Bar. As always, we'd like to invite our listeners to submit any comments or questions you might have, and you can do that by emailing historyofcastlebar at gmail.com. And myself and John will do our best to answer them and uh, get back to you with some replies as well. We have a question in here from Phelan and Phelan asks a question about the Castlebar Castle, John. Yes. And where exactly, exactly was the castle? Yeah. And does and you it know, still question, exist? Yeah, it's a question that's often asked because most people that come to Castlebar say, well, where's where's this castle that you're, it's called after? I know that there is a misconception that the castle is the one up near uh, on the shore of Loch Lenny. Yes, know, that the, comes up a lot. That comes up yeah. a lot. And a lot of local people are of the impression that that is Barry's Castle. But mm-hmm. I think we can safely say that that's not the case. No, no, that's a, that's a, an unfinished burk. To a burk castle. More a fortified house than anything. But Correct. it was a, a, a dwelling that was never finished. But uh, you can you can see why people would believe that. it's Yes, because it's know, the only thing you can see. It's the only thing you can see. A castle. Yeah. Yeah. No, unfortunately, the, the, there's no remains of the castle overground anymore. The castle was on the grounds, as we know, up on the uh, the military barracks site. There is here, right. heading to Springfield. It elevated. makes sense it was on that site. It was elevated mm-hmm. it was beside the river before the river, of course, was uh, controlled at the walls. It's under now almost canaled. But um you know, it went through, oh, since it was built in 1235 was the date that uh, associated with the, the building of that castle. It, it went through many hands over the centuries. And the, the first name that we can definitely identify as being associated with the castle is in 1333 and it was the de Coogan family. And from that then it obviously went up through, you know, we have uh, English involvement 
in Ireland and it goes through Bingham Hands and Burke Hands and Bingham Hands and Burke Hands right. and there's a lot of to and fro but mm-hmm. it's always on that site where the castle is on them if anyone's uh, familiar with the military barracks grounds it'd be where the uh, the green area is around the parading ground so there's a green area oh, yes. to the side of the parading yeah. ground and that's where so later on actually in in uh, when we have a lot more people historians or or chroniclers writing about Castle Bar and the histories of the town we know from the, the Strafford Inquisition of County Mayo, which was in the mid-1630s, that there was a manor, a castle and town of lands of Castle Bar. So it was quite, you know, it's, if once it's mentioned, you can take it that it's a inhabited operating castle. castle right. um, so it's well known that the castle was following Anglo-Norman design as well, would have had two main towers. If anyone's familiar with Ballylachan Castle on the way to, out to Strain oh, there, if you're of heading course, to Foxford. Yes. Yeah. So it resembled? It, it resembled that Ballyleghan, a lot. So if you yeah. want to get a feel for what the castle would look like, it would have looked like that. Two towers at the front and a surrounding wall around it. And inside that, then you would have had other buildings as well. And oh, they might yeah. have been wooden. And as time went on, they became uh, stone as well. Yeah, the description of it is that it was quite a, quite a large, I'd say quite a large complex, if you want to call it that, at the time. Eventually, up to the 1820s, before it was demolished, it, the towers itself housed British soldiers. Now, the towers themselves wouldn't have been quite, you know, the diameter of the towers was not something that you'd immediately associate with billeting soldiers in it. Like, I of think course, it was, it was yeah. quite small. I, if I'm not mistaken, it was only a matter of metres across. Yes. So that's something I can never get my head around, is how did they actually... Uh, fit so many soldiers uh, in there at the time okay. but the castle then once there was plans for the substantial military barracks we have up there now they demolished the all the remainder of the old castle up there and uh, thankfully to the county council and the ar- archaeology team up there we know and now that there are remains of the castle the original castle under the turf and hopefully someday you know we can maybe get trial trenches dug up there to actually see these remains and confirm right. once and for all. But that's... So we know the footprint. We know really, the footprint, but yeah. unfortunately no castle but no left castle, over yeah. ground today. And was it there in Old until the 1820s? The 1820s, yeah, it would have housed, was it, it? Was, it was recorded yeah. as housing infantry. Infantry. Yeah. And it was demolished. In, in the two towers, the brickwork then from it was used, they reckon, to build, help build the, the infantry barracks up there now. Oh, yes. Indeed. As you do, you would right. keep reusing the stone. And nothing left over ground? Nothing left over ground, only okay. on maps. Okay. Well, John, it's good note to end this particular podcast. I want to thank the listeners and invite everyone again to join us next week. Just a quick reminder that the book, The History of Castle Bar, can be bought online at mayobooks.ie or in store at the Castle Bookshop. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. From myself, Noel, goodbye. And from me, John Healy, thanks very much. The History of Castle Bar podcast is sponsored by mayobooks.ie. The series is produced by me, Brendan Gilmartin. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review.